Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam LeVinter. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak with all kinds of entrepreneurs, creators, and pioneers doing amazing things in business and beyond. This episode is brought to listeners in part by the Entrepreneurs Organization and the local chapter in Toronto, Canada. Are you a founder of a growing business? EO is the catalyst that enables entrepreneurs to learn and grow from each other. EO members are provided with a continuous cycle of peer-to-peer networking, monthly forum meetings, and world-class learning events. For more information on joining EO, visit eotoronto.ca and click apply. Have you ever thought about buying a mattress online? If you haven't, you probably will after you listen to today's guest and his story. It's my chat with Mike Geddes, who co-founded Endy, Canada's fastest growing vertical e-commerce company and market leader in the online mattress space. Mike, who is an engineer by trade, pivoted from oil and gas into entrepreneurship, founding ND.com a few years back. And we talk about that in his story today, how he narrowed in on his minimum viable product, ND's approach to growth versus its American rival Casper, what businesses can learn from the Disneyland experience, ND's appearance on Dragon's Den, lining up investment from celebrities, and much more. By the way, six-time Major League Baseball All-Star Jose Batista invested in the company after sleeping on and falling in love with an ND mattress. Quick disclaimer, the overall audio in this one is a little buggy. Our apologies for that, but the listenability is still certainly there. The content is great. So please enjoy this very wide-ranging conversation with ND's founder, Mike Geddes. Let's go back to, I guess, the early stages of this business, even before you started ND. So how does an engineer, this was curious to me, how does an engineer go from working in the oil and gas sector to pivoting to entrepreneurship and founding a mattress company? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, first of all, I know working in the oil and gas sector, I really struggled with it because I didn't have a passion for it. So I did it for a while. Uh, Part of it is like, especially in Calgary, a big part of the mentality there is that, you know, everything's about the, the black gold, you know, and it's about driving the almighty dollar. I think the mission statements of a lot of these companies, I think, is a bit light. I mean, I think there's a bit of this idea of that you're providing energy for people. And I think that's interesting. But I think for me, the compelling vision in that, like, there's probably more interesting ways for personally for me to deliver energy towards people. 
Uh, so I didn't necessarily really agree with the mission statement. And I think that came through, like, I was never really the type of person who could really fake it in, in that sort of environment and pretend like it was great. I didn't really, wasn't overly motivated by just having the salary in place. So I was lucky enough when I got started, um, I uh, went to Europe and did a, did an MBA. And when I came back, I worked there for a little bit for a marketing company that sold mattresses. And that's kind of where I originally saw the power of the business model and really sort of like the direct-to-consumer. Um, I returned back to Calgary and I was working in oil and gas, but then I started really getting interested. I was lucky enough to be working with an entrepreneurial group of people and uh, had the ability to be able to start testing, selling products on Amazon and Groupon and things like that. And so I was sort of doing this as a moonlight job and spending more and more time there. And I think part of it, what I found from as an entrepreneur that really it comes down to finding a passion, like being something that you're sticky towards. Um, it doesn't feel like work when you're just sort of obsessed about doing something. Um, and I think that was a key part to it is having that, uh, that drive comes from a passion. It doesn't necessarily come from saying like, I, I want to be an entrepreneur and I want to build a big company. I mean, I think there's a bit of that in it, but I don't think that's really the intrinsic motivation that gets you to start going. How do you get passionate about mattresses? So you, you've got a co-founder and You've talked about this before. There were a few ideas that you guys kicked around before you landed on this one. How did you move from, you know, this this entrepreneurship sort of testing phase into landing on mattresses as the primary product? Yeah, so some of that comes down to the whole idea of MVP, uh, minimum viable product. Yep. Now, there's the book Lean Startup and whatnot, and I've never actually read the book, but I've borrowed principles from it as I've talked to other people that that helped us get going. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things was to actually try try some different things and, and find something that works. So one of the things that worked really, really well was a memory foam pillow uh, that we sold. And I think the big key behind it, the reason why it was so key, is for me, I kind of thought about my own pillow that it was about finding a subtle innovation in an industry that's been around a long time. And that was something that I was passionate about in the sense that it wasn't necessarily about coming up with a completely new product or an app or some sort of software system. It was about taking something that already existed and existed for thousands of years, but trying to find a way to, to add some innovation, although some slight innovation on it. Yep. So everything we did with this memory foam pillow was making sure that it had some charcoal in it, which helped to reduce odor, make it antimicrobial. Also, the actual pillow itself was a, very, was a high quality compared to other ones that were on the market. Mm -hmm. And then we also, as a result of it, I think what really drove the mission forward was seeing results from customers and how much customers love the product. And I just said, like, why? Like, if you're just out to make money, you would not put the best product. I mean, to, quite frankly, if, if your whole goal is just to make money and to scale, then let's put a lesser product on a market and just try to make the most money possible. But a lot of times those businesses flame out because there's not a real intrinsic drive for people to want to buy more and more and more of them. So let's serve a better product through a channel and help people sleep better. And that was sort of the mission that got us going. And, and, and selfishly, I wanted products that I could sleep on better too. So, so I developed them for myself and then really liked them and then shared them with other people and it started to grow. So what we saw out of this is that, you know, at a certain point in time, selling through a channel like a Groupon or an Amazon or something like that, you're kind of beholden to them. Um, and the competition really flooded in on a lot of this stuff too. Um, there's lots of people with lots of different products and lots of different value props. It becomes kind of confusing for the customer. And so with Raj and I, as we talked about this, said, you know, this isn't going to work long term. 
So I think what we realized was that that the idea of this direct-to-consumer model, especially looking at some of the companies like the Warby Parkers and the Harrods in uh, the U.S., is really the model that made the most sense of actually building a brand online as opposed to just being a product or a channel. And I think as we've started to really iterate on this idea, we've really seen the power of it that um, I think traditionally selling products online was really about low price, about driving volume and about, it was kind of more like a distribution, like a wholesale distribution channel direct to consumers via an Amazon or a Groupon or something like that. But the power of building a brand is that you actually have the ability to connect with customers a bit more on an emotional level um, and actually be able to scale something that that will last. So yeah, as we continue to work on this and as we got ND going, we really just saw, I mean, the biggest, again, the biggest affirmation for us, the biggest thing that has kept us going is seeing how much our customers love sleeping on our mattresses and seeing how this model made so much sense just because of the fact that really um, the mattress shopping experience for a lot of people, it was neither here nor there. Like no one, I, I don't know if we met people who were like, it's horrible. I hate it because there's really no other alternative. In some ways, it was sort of like a need-based industry. Like I need a new mattress. I have to go shopping. And you would go through it. But the experience itself, I, I mean, wasn't wasn't something that people would write home about. You mentioned Harry's and uh, Warby Parker. So in the context of there being no other alternatives, it was sort of the same thing in the razor space, right? Like people were used to yeah. this sort of like, below average shopping experience in a typical pharmacy where razors were locked behind the so-called like cartridge case or whatever they call it. And it was mm-hmm. a lame experience. And so Dollar Shave Club kind of changed that. And then Harry's kind of changed that. So you're right. Consumers sort of like may have this indifferent perspective toward the shopping experience when, you know, a company like yours comes along or Harry's as it relates to shaving, they welcome that. Yeah, exactly. And I think I've definitely had you know, in different sort of business forms and things like that, people will be like, what problem were you trying to solve when you started this company? And I was like, in some ways, it wasn't really an issue. It wasn't a problem. It was just that it could be better. Why can't we strive to be better? And by doing it the way we've done it, people love it. I think it's like the other thing, you look at clothing and fashion and things like that. People buy a new shirt and hopefully they love it. Hopefully it's something that they wear every day and feel good about it, that they feel like I don't, that they feel more confident wearing those clothes. So why can't we do this in something as previously mundane as the mattress category and make it so that people actually talk about the brand of mattress they have? Like before this, how many people would actually be like, hey, I have a Serta. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, they just kind of yeah. be like, if you probe them about it, uh, some people didn't even know what brand of mattress they had. They just knew that they got one and they needed it and they're sleeping on it. And it's pretty good, but they don't really know because they've only slept on probably one or two different models in their whole life. So, yeah, so we added, I mean, the big thing there, especially with what Harry's and those guys have done too, a big thing is how do you get past that initial thought of, is this a good mattress to buy? Like, how do I know it's going to be great and buying it online? It's a blind purchase. Um, So a big part of that was our 100-night trial, adding that in and having the ability for people to try it sleep tested at home, and then if they didn't like it, return it. And we found by, by focusing on product and making a mattress, people love that, that we don't have that issue. We don't have a high rate of return. Um, and we're finding that it helps to drive our, our overall sales. Let me ask you about that um, specifically. So is there also a challenge of sort of getting Canadians to trust and warm up to the idea that this product that they're getting from an online option, which is far less expensive than, say, uh, a retail option or brick-and-mortar option. Is there a challenge in getting them to trust that this product 
is has the same sort of quality level? So I think it kind of depends on who you talk to. And there's people in both sides of the fence on millennial or whatever that prefer retail versus online. And there's people on the baby boomer side that buy exclusively online too. So it's not necessarily a fixed fence or anything like that. But um, I think the big thing, I don't think we've had that. Uh, no, I think there, there may be the odd, the odd people that look at it and say like, well, is it good? What's it going to be like? And traditionally products sold online weren't necessarily like five, 10 years ago, weren't necessarily the best. Um, they were necessarily more about driving price to a channel or something like that, as we spoke about before. Mm-hmm. So I think the innovation in that sense is making a really good mattress that you put in a box and, and, and ship directly to customers. And I think what we've been able to find is, is just say, look, we'll put our money where our mouth is. Like, give it a try, sleep on it. And if you don't like it, send it back. Like, we're telling you it's awesome. And you should have faith in that as well. So how much R&D is involved or was involved at the beginning to perfect a product like this? So there's sort of like these two dates of when you guys were founded or started 2014 or 2015. I'm guessing there was a very, very long R&D process. Can you talk about that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, from the engineer side, I spent a lot of time nerding out on foam and, and all the different metrics and all the different values. And at the beginning, we spent more of our energy um, relying on, on where the supplier specs were and what we had, uh, what they were able to give us. We spent a lot of time sleep testing. So we went through a pile of different prototypes, but slept on them uh, because even if you have a certain spec, if it doesn't sleep and feel good and, and help you help you get to sleep quickly, it doesn't do anything. I mean, we ordered one early prototype and my poor wife has had so many prototypes where she's just like, I like the mattress we're on now. Like, why are we switching it again? Um, so we went through a lot of that. Our operations lead, I think she puts it through about 15 different tests. And then based on that, looks at the properties that we're looking at. So now we're doing that first party testing and getting a, a really, really good feel. We're at the point now where we're actually developing our own custom foam with the suppliers themselves. So that helps us get exactly the characteristics we're looking for. Um, and that's also helped us up our game a little bit. Big deal also in the Canadian market, right? To have that temperature controlled advantage. Yeah. Yeah. For us, I mean, what we found actually is that um, using that very traditional doughy memory foam that although Tempur-Pedic has marketed this as the best thing since sliced bread since the the 90s, what we found is that a lot of Canadians found that it was firm in the winter and too soft in the summer because of the temperature fluctuations in Canada. Somewhere in the U.S. where the temperature is more consistent, it was perfect. So we actually had to dial down um, the, the sort of memory foam feel. And we found that customers really liked that. Um, so it has a good bounce to it. It still provides all the pressure point relief, uh, that, that a memory foam type product does. But at the end of the day, our customers are happier and, uh, we've gotten, we're getting really good feedback on that. So you guys, uh, launch in 2015 or so, um, Nova's bed, which is also a Western Canada, uh, direct to customer online player. They hit the market in 2009. Were you watching what they were doing at all? We looked at them a bit after the fact. Novus Bed, in some ways, they were they were really. It was interesting how they attacked the the market in the sense that they they really were right from the start did did sort of direct to consumer. I think if anything, though, it was a bit one of these. It felt a bit like one of these sort of like factory direct mattress companies when they first started. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think in terms of product and whatnot, at least from, from, from hearing from people that, that they do have a decent product and they've definitely caught up with, with sort of what, what we've been doing lately where they've added, uh, they've, they've sort of improved their website and things like that. Um, so I think they realized what vertical e-com was all about. 
Let's talk about the the landscape. So you've got Nova's Bed, which you mentioned. There's there's Endy, of course, as you guys. There's Casper, um, who's a big player in the U.S. They've now entered the Canadian market. Casper's raised, I don't know, close to two hundred and forty one million or something to date. You guys are, are largely bootstrapped. I mean, you've you've raised very little money. What are the sort of advantages that you see just as an entrepreneur uh, scaling a business? in your approach versus uh, somebody like a Casper? Sure. I mean, overall, I mean, one of the big things is raising a pile of money. One of the silliest things about investors is they have money in a capital fund and their whole goal is to deploy the capital. Uh, so when they do deploy that capital within companies, they invest in companies, they encourage the companies to deploy that capital. So it's a very different strategy than what a bootstrap company is doing. Like our goal is not to deploy capital. If we don't, if we can't, let's not deploy it. Let's keep it in the bank account. Let's use it for things or save it for when we need to do a marketing push. We're not in that mode where it's like, let's just spend money for the sake of it. And I think a big difference between us and them is that. Uh, the other thing is being on the ground in Canada. We've been on the ground in Canada since the start. They've, they, they have announced about opening an office or something, but I don't really know how far that's come along. And I think... They're just like the way that American companies look at Canada is kind of just like this 51st state and they tack it on and it adds 9% or 10% to boost on their overall revenue and they sort of leave it be. Um, I think for us, we've looked at a Canada first approach where how do we how do we look at each province almost as a different country and how do we properly serve all of those different places? So we did start with a Toronto first approach when we first started because we were based here. Um, but as we've grown, we've looked at expanding in, in a sense of like, now, how do we look at BC? How do we look at Alberta? How do we look at Quebec and all these different places? And I think that's helped us a lot for sure, because even there, there's nuances between the different provinces and the way people look at things. You've got a facility in Montreal. Um, are you opening additional manufacturing here as well? Yeah, so we work with partners. We, we contract the manufacturing, but uh, we're getting very, very tied together, very close. We have a couple of different partners. So we work with a couple of different ones. But yes, we have one in, uh, in Quebec. What are the markets like? Um, so the expanding from, say, um, a Toronto or an Ontario to then look at a BC and how BC behaves versus the Quebec market, how Quebec behaves versus Manitoba. What are the nuances that you're seeing between the provinces? Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest things is like the a big difference that we found was uh, growing our offline, specifically our out of home advertising. Uh, the way that Vancouver is, I mean, in general, in Vancouver, there's not a lot of billboards even in the core, um, and a lot of that's based on the fact that people don't want them there. They don't want to see ads as they walk around. Um, they they want to see the mountains instead of instead of a billboard. So there's been a lot of pressure locally to not even put them up in the first place. So for the ads that we do buy, I mean, it's just a different strategy. You can't take over the city, right? You can't just go in there and buy everything and then boom, you have a sales boost. Um, in Toronto, I mean, there's just ads. It, there's ads everywhere. It's similar to a New York in that sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got subway ads and you've got billboards and you've got bus shelters and you've got go train and you've got gardener billboards and everything, right? So people are a little bit more accustomed to seeing that and they don't necessarily look poorly upon it. So I think that is uh, in Toronto most definitely a different strategy. Quebec, we find is uh, there. There's a bit of mistrust, I think, in general for people from outside of Quebec bringing in a product. So I think part of that is just finding creative ways to build trust in Quebec. Um, and I think if anything, that's probably the one that's lagged us. Uh, but basically, just like we've done a pop-up shop there and we've done some other stuff, 
but I think all, part of us is about building an authentic experience with customers. Um, so we're looking to do more in Quebec in the, in the coming year. And you've been customer centric since the get go, right? Like this has been a very big core value for you guys. What's the difference between um, what you're doing on the customer experience side versus the customer service side of things? Yeah, the main difference, I mean, one of the things with customer experience has become a bit of a buzzword the last little while. Like if you go to Disneyland, I don't know if you've been to Disneyland or when you were a kid or, or gone down there, but the actual experience of being in Disneyland is waiting in line, being hot, uh, someone's spilling a drink on you, not knowing where to go some of the time. But everyone seems to somehow come out of Disneyland and say it's like one of the most memorable experiences of their childhood or as a parent bringing kids there, being like it was one of the most amazing vacations we've done. And everyone can remember that time if they have gone. And so it's like, what have they done to make that experience amazing? Yeah. Um, so I think for us, like we have that same experience where like sometimes um, dealing with shipping providers, people who ship, like as everyone knows, not every package arrives on time. Um, so how do we mitigate that? Um, so a big part of it is looking at it from a full customer journey perspective and looking at our customer experience and trying to define which moments really, really are key for customers and really trying to make sure that we own that and we're really good at that stuff. Um, so customer experience is key for us. And the customer service side, I mean, to talk about customer service really traditionally is more of a defense mode where you're saying, okay, there's an issue, then how do we resolve it efficiently with the customer? I mean, everyone has had that experience with the cell phone companies where somehow when you want to sign up, you talk to a completely different team than when you have an issue. And the sign-up team gives you half off your rate, but the team when you have an issue won't give you anything. And you're sort of like, well, why? That doesn't make sense. But they've basically built their customer service based on what's best for the business, not what's best for the customer. And so for us, I mean, a big part of it was having very little process at the beginning and just basically be empathetic and, and solve the customer's problem and help them with what they need. And the, the North Star is just to make sure that that you're, you're helping the customer and you're listening and, and that sort of thing. Were you also looking at some other CEOs who were uh, who have built sort of amazing success stories on this kind of cornerstone pillar of customer centric scaling? Like I can think of a couple. So Bezos um, has a history of being, you know, customer first. Um, Mark Benioff of Salesforce, same sort of idea. Were there any sort of inspirations for you in that regard? Well, actually, quite recently, I read some really good quotes from Jeff Bezos um, that he wrote. I think it was Wall Street Journal like a month ago or something, and he did a keynote. I really liked his, his point of view. Like, I really aligned with it. Um, I even brought it up in one of our all hands. And part of it, what he talked about was uh, the difference between being obsessed with the customer versus being obsessed with your competitor. And I think what happens is, is in an online space, all these competitors come in, like you mentioned, Novasbed and Casper. I think what happens happens is it's so easy to look at it from the perspective of like, what are they doing? Why are they doing that? Should we be doing that? And I think people almost get a bit of some CEOs or, or some companies, you can see where they almost become reactive towards what the competitors are doing. And the North Star cell always companies, right? You said cell phone companies are yeah. a perfect example of that. Yeah. And the North Star always needs to be what's best for the customer. And you, at some point, you need to almost be oblivious of what your competitors are doing. Um, just to almost put the blinders on, like, I don't know if you played any competitive sports or anything like that yourself, yeah. uh, but I grew up playing a lot of hockey and that was my model for, for a team and winning and, and in a competitive environment and how to handle that properly. And I know there were so many times I remember we would play, we were like 
depending on what year it was, but, but some years we were really good and we would be sort of near the top of the league. And then we would play the bottom team in the league and somehow lose. And, you know, after the game, you'd sit down and be like, how, how do you lose to the bottom team in the league? Like you're bona fide better and you go on the ice and then all of a sudden out of nowhere, they, they're scoring goals on you and you've lost. And so I think a big lesson from that was the idea that we weren't playing our game. We were playing their game. We were playing reactive to what they were doing and saying, look, if they move there, we'll move there. But what you need to do is find the open ice and, and, and score goals. And you need to get people who are able to play as a team and have chemistry and play together well, have a good coach. All of that stuff is so critical. And scoring goals for us really is getting good customer reviews. That's really kind of where our, our compass has been, been forced and, and pushed since the beginning. And I think to be able to do that, to look at what anyone else is doing doesn't really matter because I have no idea what's going on inside their company. Like maybe they're, maybe they're struggling, maybe they're doing great. I don't know. But if we're growing and, and our customers are happy, then, then we're in a good spot. Let me ask you about marketing channels, Mike. So you mentioned earlier the billboard landscape in an Ontario market versus in BC. How, how did your marketing channels evolve as you grew? So in your first year, say um, you do a million dollars in revenue. In your second year, you uh, scale to 10 million or so, um, and then it's up and up from there. How does the marketing shift like, what were you doing in your first year versus what you guys are doing now? Yeah, I, I'm a big believer, and this came from even working overseas a bit. I'm a really big believer in multi-channel marketing. Um, I really don't think that there's like a single channel that you can market through that's going to solve everything. Um, so a big part of that has been, um, so when we first started, it, we really kind of have built our marketing like a layer cake where we started with a single channel and we've added more. Um, so adding it together, I think there's new challenges in terms of how do you measure attribution. And a lot of people talk about that in the marketing world about how do you know which impression is the one that drove them to actually make a purchase. Mm -hmm. I think from looking at it from our perspective, it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, the whole thing works together like an ecosystem. There's not like a single piece of it that makes it so that it's, it's performing. And without that single piece, the whole thing wouldn't work. But when it all works well together and it's communicating well and our brand is on point and consistent, you're going to see that people resonate with it, that they remember who we are, that they know what we sell and that they have the ability to find our website or our retail locations or anything like that to be able to purchase. So that's the goal that we're trying to build and, and to build an ecosystem that's consistent, that's, that's streamlined. Uh, we don't want to waste any money on it. And also that resonates well with our customer. And I think as we grow even further, a big key to that will be resonating more as a brand with customers and, and something that they know and love um, and, and working to, to continue to grow as we get closer to the 100 million mark. When you guys go on Dragon's Den, so was that a marketing strategy or were you really seeking financing? Like what was the primary goal there? They were going to put us on before lunch and we were all ready to go. And then they didn't put us on. And so that was, it was horrifying for me because I had my head all into this. Like, we're ready to go. We're ready to go. And then out of nowhere in our green room, they put with us a group of people that were selling bolognese sauce made from bugs. And so <laughs> the one guy was talking about mealworms and the other one was talking about maggots or something and i was just like oh my god like i don't know how i'm gonna get out there like i feel i felt sick i felt sick and we finally were able to get out of that green room uh with the mealworm people 
And we got outside and uh, we got down and we started walking down the stairwell. And it was it was really cool. I mean, we had the ability to stand in front of the dragons actually in person and actually have a conversation with them. It goes on a lot longer than you see on the show. It goes on for almost like 35, 45 minutes. And they really do a grilling on you on everything. So, yeah, the, to get back to your question, I mean, our goal wasn't to go on there um, for marketing uh, solely. I think we wanted two things. We were looking at seeing if there was a way to to raise some money. And then on the publicity side, I mean, I've been on a on a live TV show. Uh, well, it's a pre-recorded, but but on a TV show that that goes on live television it was going to be beneficial as in terms of exposure. You know, what struck me and switching gears here for a moment uh, in researching the competition. So Casper uh, talking about investors, I mean, they've lined up some big celebrity investment from. I don't know, Kevin Spacey, Leonardo DiCaprio, 50 Cent. I wonder what their their strategy is there with uh, lining up all the celebrities. I'm thinking it's sort of a PR stunt. What's your take on it? It's weird for me to look at celebrities because in a sense, like they are a walking billboard of their own brand. (laughs) And I think that would be uncomfortable in some ways, right? Like everything you do and say represents who you are. And your brand is actually an asset that can be sold. So it's like... I think it would be it would be odd for them. So I think a lot of them are cognizant of that. They don't want to just be sort of like a one trick pony. They want to be involved in different things. And you guys partnered with Jose Batista, right? How did you guys come together? Yeah, so that again was just through networking. Um, yeah, so my co-founder uh, Rajan and I just just sort of through a few contacts at the at the company and things like that, and through some events. And and I think we just saw a really good alignment with Jose and what he was looking to do. He's, uh, yeah, he's a great guy. I mean, he donates a lot of money to charity. He's really focused on, um, in terms of children and, and, and that sort of thing. He has a tie back to Dominican in terms of uh, coming up there. I think for him, it's really important because like he wasn't wealthy when he grew up, right? So for him, giving back is really important. Um, and that's also like, I think he aligns a lot with our social mission that we have. So, yeah, when when Jose was saying, you know, I don't really want to do we talked about some different ideas and he was saying, you know, I think it's a cool idea to invest. He actually just wanted to get involved in in some different things. We shipped him a mattress early on. That was a key part. We shipped him a mattress, like give this thing a try. He loved it. He recommended it to a bunch of a bunch of other people. So so that was helpful for us. So, yeah, that's that's part of what it's been about with Jose. And so then he said, finally, like for a while, he wanted to invest. And we were kind of like, yeah, like we're a bootstrap startup. We don't really need the money, but sort of eventually we came to an idea uh, and were able to uh, find a way. And I think it's a win-win. Like, uh, you know, he has the ability to participate in our growth. Um, He hasn't really done a lot of interviews or publicity for us, uh, but we did sort of an initial press release about it. So, yeah, I think it's really cool. I really love Jose. He's done an amazing job for our for Toronto and for the city and just even that bat flip and all those things are so cool. I he was re- at that game. That was an unbelievable was, game. Yeah. And I think, I don't know. I realized that even after we put the press release out, how much that bat flip and whatnot of him just kind of giving a bat flip to the whole MLB in a way. And I think we kind of feel the same way about the mattress industry, right? Like we're, we're here to give a bat flip to the mattress industry. <laughs> a little. And that's our goal. That also keep, get, gets us excited, right? Um, about, about, doing things in a different way, not necessarily just being um, a vanilla offering that's the same as everyone else, right? That's a great way to put it. Um, <laughs> really like that. Uh, that. That could be the next campaign, actually, the bad flip to the mattress industry. We're trying to convince him. I don't think he's fully wanting to tie his personal brand 
the backflip because it's been so much in the news. So we're like, okay, let's see. We'll see what we can do. But uh, it's an ongoing conversation, and uh, he has the right to veto anything we give him. <laughs> I know um, you've done some work with online influencers. Uh, he must have a good network, too, of influencers. Has he opened doors there for you guys? He does a little bit, um, and we've talked about that. To be honest, he's a really busy guy. It, it's really intense what they what they go through. So I just want to rewind back to the uh, earlier mentions of Warby Parker, and um, we talked about Harry's, but there's there's yep. been others besides Warby that have sort of started online and moved offline. Um, I want to ask you about your experience there. So there's obvious price advantages, and you're sort of starting to dip now more into retail showrooms. And you've talked a lot about expanding uh, further with some other retail concept testing. What's the yeah. what's the sort of vision for what's next in that regard? Sure. I mean, retail is a, is a really interesting thing. I know there's a lot of like every time I would go to the retail council conference and everyone talks about how retail is being disrupted and it's all being changed and retail's dying or people say all these sort of things. But at the end of the day, what's really changed is like when you really look back on it. I mean, I was even having a conversation yesterday with my wife about pizza chains, right? And what makes a successful pizza chain? And I was just looking at it like back in the day, you really just had to have a lot of locations in the right places. And you had to have pizza in your name somehow. And you were able if you were able to make a decent pizza, it was good. But like, I don't know, some pizza chains that exist in Toronto, I think are okay, right? They're not that amazing, but they just exist and they're near you. Um, so I think that's where retail played a really strong point is that you didn't necessarily need to have the exact best offering. You just had to be convenient and have your location nearby so that the person, if they were going to buy that product, could get there and buy it. In the new age, you have the online presence. So a lot of the online retailers who, who are like us are able to produce a fantastic product and win over customers that way. So then what happens with retail? Does retail disappear? No, it doesn't. So I think we've looked at this that, yes, we are looking to do retail. Are there ways that it's inefficient? Sure. I mean, if you have hundreds of different stores all across the country as basically your billboard, your marketing, your place to buy and everything. So that philosophy of retail and how it was run, say, 20 years ago is going out the door. That's the one that's leaving. But the idea of retail and its role within building a retail brand and building a vertical e-commerce brand is still very critical. But secondly, it's about building trust and building customer experience and, and, and warmth with the brand, like being able to walk through something in three dimensions in person. The type of experience that you can impart on your customer is, is amazing what you can do with it if you do it the right way. I, I sometimes think of some of my best experiences in terms of purchasing something and a lot of them like, you know, buying a car or something like that where you've really had the ability to do the test drive and you do all that different stuff. The retail and actually being able to go in person has been a key part to that. So I don't think we want to ignore that. We also look at terms of different customers and how they are. Not everyone's an online shopper. It's like the way people communicate. Like not everyone's an emailer. Not everyone's a texter. Some people only want to talk on the phone. So we have to be able to ex expand our breadth as we want to grow and have access to people uh, that may or may not shop online. So I don't think for us, like retail isn't like we're going to go into retail and that's going to triple our business overnight. It's a long-term investment. Uh, but I think if we put stores in the right place, we create an amazing customer experience. We put products that are relevant for people and are accessible in terms of pricing. And we've done that from the start. We're going to see that people really resonate well with it. And I can see us not having a, an experience that's a money-losing experience, being thoughtful about it. In terms of the unit economics, so um, 
do you foresee any challenges maintaining price points with the consistent in- increases that we've seen in commercial real estate? Some of these stores are just saying, you know what, I have to shut my doors down. So I think what it becomes is if you're able to get in a really high traffic area, I still think there's a way to make it work. But at the end of the day, you are right. As real estate continues to rise, um, you have to be really, really laser focused on location and how you're able to fit that into your marketing ecosystem. Okay, Mike, so I'm going to shift gears. Uh, We only have a few minutes left. Some quick rapid fire questions for you. What's the difference between innovation and disruption, in your opinion? In my opinion, it's the same thing. Disruption is innovation. Do you take siestas in your offices? I sometimes will take a phone call on the bed, and that's my version of a, of a siesta. This current one is not in the bed. <laughs> Are you planning to put sleeping pods in legacy corporations that want to create cooler workspaces? Yes. Yes, we'll look at that for sure. Uh, we're going to open up. A- <laughs> nice. I love that. What size mattress do you have at home? A king size. Um, I thought getting a king size would be um, worlds of room. But now with uh, a son who's three years old and my wife and a second one on the way, uh, that king size is getting filled up pretty fast. Who's your favorite online direct-to-consumer product company, if not ND? Um, actually, to give credit to the Novaspeg guys, they started one of the founders there, two of the founders of there started Article. Uh, and I've ordered a ton of furniture from them. I really like Article. If you weren't selling mattresses online and you were going to do something completely different, what would you do? Well, being an engineer, I like the idea of software and something innovative. Um, so I've liked that idea, uh, but I don't think uh, at this point in time, I have no intention to execute anything. What does your wife get most annoyed with? Uh, I'm using my phone at the dinner table. I like to check <laughs> sales. And... Yeah. So if I use my phone at the dinner table, it's a bad idea. So I essentially have to throw it somewhere else um, because, yeah, I can't can't look at our marketing campaigns, what we're eating. Do you see a benefit in having Casper just plow dollars into marketing here? Absolutely. I see them as a friendly foe. I mean, I've never, we never started this company and said, let's try to, let's try to get in Casper's way. It's just sort of like, let's try to, let's try to get more customers. And that's really the most important part and, and have them have an amazing experience, have a good, better sleep. That's been our mission. Um, so if Casper's there, I mean, to us, we try to stay oblivious of what they're doing. Okay. So ND.com, that's E-N-D-Y.com for more on uh, ND, of course, and the mission and everything else. It's been a real pleasure, Mike, having you on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening and being a part of E2. E2 is brought to listeners in part by Scriberbase, building subscription businesses for retail brands. Visit Scriberbase.com for more info. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork. WeWork is a global network of workspaces where people and companies grow together. WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. Your positive support means a lot to us. So if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your audio. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. 
I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric acid.